Hello listeners, welcome back on the Founders Club podcast. Today my guest is Yuan Delvarde. Yuan is a French engineer by training and a human developer by passion. He has been living in Shanghai for almost six years, where he climbed the ladder from sales engineer to sales director. He started his own business now to help companies to scale up and people to sell more with integrity. He sells experience with small medium enterprises and various clients such as Johnson and Johnson helped him to identify the needs of different organizations as well as individuals for sales training, coaching and consulting. Currently, he is a mentor for startup uh, founders through Chen Accelerator and he gives lectures to different MBAs and business schools in Shanghai. So please enjoy this wide range conversation. Hello, Yuan. Can you hear me? Hi, Jojo. So, thank you for uh, joining uh, the Founders Club uh, podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure. Awesome. Uh, okay, so I know it's not common for me right now, uh, for us actually to do this interview, but we have to adapt to the current times. And this is actually is the second time I'm doing uh, a podcast interview using uh, Zoom in this case. So we'll see how it goes. Hopefully it'll go uh, all the best. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, so let's start with our first question that uh, I wanted to ask so that we can give a, a little bit of background to, uh, to our listeners who are listening. And uh, can you tell more about the time you chose to come to China and why you decided to, to go there? Actually, I arrived in China in 2014, a bit more than six years ago, after I finished my engineering study. So actually, I came to China for my first job as a sales engineer. And why I chose China at that time? Actually, I had different choice. First choice, of course, was to stay in France, my home country. I also had an offer in US near New York for the previous company I was working at that time in the cosmetic industry, and this one in Shanghai. And actually, I, when I talked with my best friend, who was the son of a pilot, he told me that Shanghai is just a wonderful city, booming. And of course, China was at that time and is still one of the most growing countries. So that's why I chose to come to China. I didn't know how to say anyhow. I have never been to Asia before, but I chose to come to China for this reason. So you trusted your friend. How, how long was that ago? Like how many years? Actually, I arrived in 2014. So I arrived six years ago. And my best friend was my first roommate when I was at the engineering school, so I know him for more than 10 years now. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I guess he turned out to be a good uh, and wise advice. <laughs> Definitely. I, I have no regrets. I think this is one of the best places to be in terms of business, in terms of growth, in terms of friendship. I love the Chinese culture as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful to have made that choice. You mentioned that uh, by by training you're in, you are an engineer and now obviously you are coaching people and doing sales. Can you tell me more about this uh, transition? How did you came to become a salesperson or to help other people to increase their sales? 
actually this is a funny question because now that you ask me i remember the first time i did a sales job was more than 10 years ago in a summer job so i was a salesman in a shop in france in a power tool shop and actually when i arrived that first day i still remember i had a training with a lot of senior guys that didn't really care about me of course i was the young guy who would only stay two months why they would bother right and actually i don't know why but i really wanted to do well in that summer job and i took my job very seriously so as a salesman i, I was responsible to make my alley always clean to serve the people who would come and actually one day i still remember there was this woman who was about to get married and who wanted to buy a the bathroom of her dream. So I was taking care of her. And actually that day I made the deal worth more than 70,000 70, euros. And that was the biggest deal of the of the shop uh, has ever done for um, a summer job. And at the end of those two months, I gave a training to those senior people, which didn't really want to take care of me on the first day. And I share with them this story, how I took care of this lady. And of course this lady was uh, with her future husband, and you could see the face of the husband turning dark time after time, uh, after every time she chose something, of course, very expensive. So I, I don't know that day, I just felt it. And this is really the, the turning point for me, wh why I want to do the sales job, because this is my passion. I, I love serving people, I love helping them, I love creating value. And that's why even when I was in engineering school, I already knew that I would not do a technical job. I would be a more sales guy, but I started to sell a software. So it was a technical product. So I think that my engineering background really helped me to understand the technicality of the people I was working with. So I, it's not a regret. I think it's, it's really helping. I have both. I have the sales part and I have the technical part. Having such background, such as uh, engineer, uh, how much it actually helps and does it give an edge in when you transition to sales position or uh, can you tell more about that? Actually, I was lucky because the first job that I gave was to sell a software, a technical software. So my clients were in R&D, engineering department, technical department. So they were most mostly engineers. And even the CEOs, even though they were not engineers, but they were working in manufacturing companies. So a lot of engineering background. And I would say that it really helped me to understand what my clients were doing in terms of their jobs, their vocabulary, also their mindset. So it was definitely a, a great advantage. The thing is, it's more about the analytics. So in France, when you are an engineer, you learn how to learn. So it's not about what I learn, it's about the way I learn. So it's also about the speed of learning. And in sales, you really have to learn fast. Because every client is different, every industry is different, every background or even country is different, so you have to adapt and you have to, to be fast learner. Yeah. So I think that's the most important factor for me, be able to be the fast learner. Right, being able uh, to learn fast and to adapt, it's becoming a very important skill to succeed in many, many positions. And what I wanted to ask you, uh, is there something that you had, uh, you wish you had known about sales when you first started?
actually the one thing that I have in my mind now, I wish sales would have told me that it would be a, lo a, a job for life. Because now that I started, I don't see myself stopping. And I wish sales would have told me because that, that's like marriage, you know, when you commit yourself for a long time for the life, then it's the same for the sales part. So I really don't see myself doing another job. So that is about the, the good part. And then if I reflect about actually all the deals that I missed or I failed, actually every time I got a learning through it and all the deals that I made or the clients that I helped raise my confidence. So I, I don't think I have any regret or anything I wish to learn at the beginning. I think it's more a journey and I take it uh, step, step by step, yeah, day after day. Uh, about sales, when especially when you like lose a deal, and and this to every every salesperson it happens. Can can you tell me more, like uh, how that make you feel, and what did you learn from the, those experiences? So actually, I, I remember I read in a, in a book. I'm very bad to remember the names of the book, but the story is very vivid. The difference between the sales that make the deals and the sales that lose the deal actually is 5%, just 5%. It's on very small details, especially when you have complex sales with a lot of decision makers, with deals worth several millions euro. The sales usually is done on a very, very few details. So what I learned is that if you really want to have the most chance to win a deal, you have to get all the people on your side motivated, supporting you, serving the clients, and you have to be very well prepared and you always have to think from the other angle. How will my competitor talk about me? How is my client seeing me? Which question can I ask? So this is really something that I learned. Usually the differences are not big. It's a lot of small details. There's a lot of small steps. Uh, sometimes the, the first impression, if you don't give a good first impression, you already lose the deal. So this is what I learned. And of course, after every time you, you lose a big deal, especially, you always reflect and you always have this kind of of down period where you think what could I have done differently? What could I have changed? But I think the focus is on the present, what you can do today to make tomorrow better. So this is really something that actually I, I learned mostly from the failure rather than the success. Right. Uh, so many people are asking the question, okay, uh, I have a startup and so on and so forth. I have a company uh, so let's go on more a strategic level. What are some strategies or uh, techniques that uh, that are are good to implement in order to generate new leads or to have to to close new deals and so on and so forth? So if we think about the let's say the funnel, right? What has worked for you, especially in China, where you have to deal with different kind of uh, buyers? Can you walk us through through this process, how it turned out to be for you? So first of all, I would like to make a remark. 95% of my previous experiences in B2B. So most of my experiences for business to business, I don't really have experience in B2C. So what I will explain was right for me in the B2B environment. And if you are doing B2C or B2B2C, you have to adapt maybe a little bit. So actually, as you said, in the sales funnel, you have different steps. So I have those six steps. The first step is about targeting. Second step is about interact. Third step is about propose. Fourth is about close. 
Fifth is about exceed expectation. And six is about growing, growing the account. So actually for each step, I have tools, I have processes, I have methodologies coming from books, from previous experience. So what we do with our clients actually is to grow through the sales funnel and understand where are the bottleneck. Because actually I'm sure already you and the people who are listening, you're already doing a lot of great things. There are a lot of things that are working very well for your funnel today. But there may be one or two that actually are struggling or are your bottleneck. And the sales chain, the power of a sales chain is as strong as the weakest part. So for some people, they have some challenge in targeting. They don't know what could be their niche market. They they don't really find the right product market fit. So of course, if you don't have the right product market fit, you can see 1,000 people, it will not work. For some people, they have very good targeting, but they are not good at interacting. They don't know how to discover the needs of the clients. They don't know how to create the trust. For some of them, they don't know how to propose. They don't know how to write a clear contract. Some of them, they have this kind of fear when the closing comes. They don't. They are not very confident. They lose confidence and they lose the deals. First, actually, for some of the clients, they, they close many deals, but then they cannot deliver. Actually, the product that they implement or the service that they are doing doesn't make the client satisfied. So, of course, the client doesn't want to continue and doesn't want to grow. And and actually, for a few clients also that I'm helping, they have clients, but they are not really doing the best out of their clients, meaning that they could make much more upsell or cross-sell or even renewals, but they are not very systematic. So, actually, this is a, just a few examples to show you that you can really improve a lot of things in your sales funnel. I think the most important is to identify your top three. What are the top three areas where you can improve based on the metrics? And if you see the flow of your sales funnel, you will see mainly where you have issues. So actually for me, I I can talk uh, for hours about previous success, but I think what would be helpful for the people is more to ask themselves, where are we having challenges today? And what can we do to remove those bottlenecks and improve our sales funnel? Let's let's dig let's dig deeper in one of those uh, six points that you you mentioned, and like let's start with the the bottom, which I think is uh, you mentioned targeting. Um, what works for you, and how? Uh, what are the best practices in when you target uh, your niche market? Is it content marketing? Is it email? What is it that works exactly? And what does does not work? Very interesting. Actually, as you said, targeting is the beginning of the funnel. So it can be the bottom, it can be the top. Depends how you, you, draw, you, you draw it. For me, what works is really about the content marketing. Because when you create content for people, they want to reach out to you. They want to know what you do. The thing is that in some industries, especially traditional industries, those people, they are not really reading content on the internet because it's already a very well-established industry. So you need to find other ways. And SEO may not be always working. So actually what I realized at the beginning of the funnel, what could be working very well is to use the different social media, such as LinkedIn, to interact with the people directly. So it's about being clear of your persona. So what would be their position? What would be their industry? What would be their, their, mainly their keywords? 
and then contact them with the willingness of learning on what they do. Because I have received so many messages of the people asking me on LinkedIn, and right after I accepted them, they would give me the sales pitch. And I don't want to talk to them. So what works at the beginning of the funnel is when you interact with someone and you tell him that actually you are helping similar clients and you want to know more about them. And you are not here to sell, you are here to help. So this is something that really worked for me when you give the impression, because this is the truth. The truth, this is what you really believe. You can help them. And first, you understand more about what they do. So their current situation, you try to understand their pain, what could be their gain. You try to understand the implication of those pain, because sometimes they have a pain, but this is not so big, so they will not change. And then after, what could be the solution or the product that will relieve those pain or create the gain? And actually, in many of my interactions, after talking to them, I would recommend some friends or some other supplier that would be helpful for them. So it's not always about your product. Sometimes it's about your ecosystem. And when you do that, when you introduce leads to your friends or your community, they will also introduce leads to you. So this is what I realized at the beginning of the funnel, what's really important. It's about understanding the other, creating the value for him. That really, really is his pain. Because every people, they have different pain, even within the same industry, within the same company. So what you say to someone A is not the same as what you would say to the, the other person B. So communication, it's a really important aspect. Uh, I want to ask you... It's about listening. When you really listen, I even say listen aggressively. When you understand about the industry, when you understand about their challenges, when you really listen to what the people are saying. When I say listen, it means you are not trying to listen to sell your product. You are listening to what they are saying. Once you go deep and you really understand and you show that you understood, so you reformulate. This is also a technique that I use very frequently in the interaction. Reformulate. Show to the person that you understood him or her. Then the, the level of trust and relationship is extremely deep. And this relationship can help you to go through the whole sales funnel, or the person would recommend you to one of his friends or his colleague or his supplier because he believes you can help him or her. Uh, reformulate. Can you explain that uh, a bit more? What do you mean by that? Okay. So let's take an example. And I will ask you a question, Giorgio. I would say, because I already know you, right? So I already know the industry that you're in. So I think we can skip that stage. And I will ask you, Giorgio, what is your number one challenge when you are approaching schools in China? Uh, my number one challenge when I approach schools in China is to convince that uh, my product is a painkiller and it's not a vitamin. So if I reformulate, what you are saying me is that your challenge, it's about your value proposition. So to show them that actually your product can release their pain is a painkiller rather than something maybe additional that they don't really need. Is that correct? Exactly. So this is reformulation. All right. I see. I see. Very interesting. <laughs> it's, how do you feel after I reformulate? Well, I feel that you try, you understand uh, the, the, the challenge that I have and you help me to see from a different angle. And then this is just the beginning, right? Because after, of course, I would ask you follow-up question and I would try to better understand because what you are saying 
could have many different routes. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe it's about the, the way you interact. Maybe it's about the schools you are proposing. There, there could be so many, so many factors of why you are having this challenge. So this is just the first question. But the mindset is there. I, I really want to listen to what you are saying. And I even forgot who I am. I even forgot what I do. And I even forgot I am helping people like you to sell more. Because I really listen to you. You understand what I mean? Mm-hmm. I see. Uh, you, you, you work also with uh, Chan Accelerator, which is a leading um, incubator in, in Asia. And I wanted to ask, uh, what, is, what are, what are uh, some of the mistakes that uh, startups founders do when, they approach, when they're approaching B2B sales for the first time? Uh, can, can you tell more about that and how do you coach them? to overcome those mistakes. So actually, I'm very grateful to be a mentor at Chan Accelerator because I do it since 2018. And actually, they really encouraged me to create my new business. And actually, one of my first clients is coming from Chan Accelerator. And basically, they got a round of investment. And at that time, they needed to create a sales team and they wanted me to help them. So I'm, I'm really grateful. And what I do with them is I coach all their companies, batch after batch, the one who are in B2B market. And actually, what is very interesting is that no matter the industry, as you said, the, the mistakes are, are very common. So the first mistake is that they are not tracking what they do. So they are kind of going here and there, but they don't really have a strategy. So the first advice I give them is first have a goal. And then based on this goal, I have an action plan. Then based on this action plan, find some metrics, some KPI, and then doing some progress reports. And then based on the goal, reassess maybe every two weeks, every month, whether this goal is the right goal or we need to change the goal. If I take an example, and this is what I call a sprint. If I take an example, one of the startups that was helping was focusing in the hospitality. So that was last year, of course, before the outbreak, because no hospitality It's a very challenging industry. And actually, they wanted to focus on hospitality, but they were not precise enough to make a segmentation. So they were targeting small hotels, big hotels, hotel chains. They were targeting yoga centers. They were targeting spa. And the thing is, if you target everyone, at the end, nobody wants to listen to you because you are not talking their language or their vocabulary. So this is the first mistake. It's about having a niche market that is not narrow enough. Because when you want to sell everything to everyone, you sell nothing to no one. Another mistake that I found is, especially when the people who are coming from B2C, actually B2B is different because you have different, most of the time, different decision maker. Sometimes the decision is made across different locations. So you need to understand the politics inside those companies to understand who has the power to decide, who has the budget, who really has an urgent need. So this is also something that I try to influence them and inspire them on finding who is really the decision maker, for example, and who has the budget, because that really matters in a, in a company and a, in the B2B industry. Another thing that I'm helping them actually is about the processes, because when a founder starts his startup, he has to be a good sales, because if, the, if one of the founders is not a good sales, for me, the, the startup doesn't survive, that's something for sure. 
but then after the startup raise some funds have some i would say not maybe pre-a but before still investment and he's trying to recruit the first sales the founder has to train the team coach the team and this is usually the points where it's very tricky and challenging because the founder has some challenges to explain to the new sales guy what he or she should do and that's why so many sales people they quit in the startup environment so this is also something i'm trying to help them to map the processes when they are doing it because if they don't do it along the way at the end they are too busy to do it they don't do it and then the company has a bottleneck so along the way when they have a success document it follow the process write down the different sprint what didn't work what worked so this is also something I, I will have them. So if I summarize first is about having a clear goal, a clear niche market. The second one is to understand the dynamics of the B2B, to understand that the decision is made by different people. And the third one is about the processes, document, write, before it's too late. Yeah, I see some of the, the points that you mentioned. Uh, tracking what the salesperson do, have a goal, have an action plan, uh, have some KPIs and then write a progress report and after two months or one month change the goal if it's not working and then have a niche market uh, and try to not sell everything to everybody just but just to some uh, some specific to somebody specifically and I, I recognize some of those mistakes we also uh, we also did and we're still adjusting but I, I recognize some of the points and I have to admit my 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 guilt in front of you. <laughs> so yeah. I think this is a process. I think when the startup is at the ideation stage, this is the time to try, this is the time to fail, because if you fail fast, you succeed faster. Right. The thing is once you are I would say after round A or round B, you really need to deliver and you have investors who put a lot of money. And you need to reach those KPI, otherwise maybe they will stop investing or you will miss the, the next round. This is the time where you really have to be disciplined and precise. And I believe that sales is an art, sales is a science. This is not just random, has to has to follow uh, some procedures, some processes, some guidelines. Even the people you recruit, they have to believe in the company culture. So all of that, I believe, make a, a startup successful. I, I like I like what you what you just said. Uh, sales, it's part uh, part of it. It's an art, and part of it is a science. So it's like a mix of those two elements, which are so um, on the opposite spectrum of each other. <laughs> exactly. That's why I mentioned both because some of the sales that I met, they are extremely good at creativity, and and you could see when they are. They are there, it's like they are in a show. You can see their performance. The thing is that if you are just a, an artist and, and you are not a scientist, you are not tracking, you are not following, then your company will not scale. On the other hand, if you are only a scientist and you don't have this kind of creativity and, and artist mindset, maybe you will not get your first clients. Maybe you will not inspire them. So that's why I believe this is both. And that's why I believe if you have different personality in your team, that will make your sales team much stronger. So in terms of personality in team, uh, so if someone is more um, uh, toward being a, a scientist, it, do you think it's less able to be uh, a salesperson since he's not able to 
embody the, the artistic part of it? Or what do you think? Like, is someone, what I want to try to ask is, is someone uh, uh, born to be a salesperson or is something that everybody can learn? Actually, I would say this is one of the top three most frequent questions that people ask me. So now I have a very precise answer for this and I have two stories I want to share with you. Please the do. first story is actually one of my best sales that I never had. was someone very analytical, so I would categorize him as a scientist. He hated public speaking. He didn't like networking. And actually, he didn't like cold call. The thing is that he was very analytical. He was very good at sending emails, very targeted emails. And he was when he was calling someone, he made so much preparation that the guy on the phone felt he was an expert. And this guy made a lot of deals, really a lot of deals with amazing companies, and top leaders, even Fortune 50. And, and again, this guy was not extroverted. This guy was not at speaking. He was purely a scientist. On the other hand, I also had another sales, and this sales was was a definition of an artist. <laughs> he was also Italian, he was very good at networking, everyone liked him, and he was going out, I think, three nights a week, and he was bringing deal, and you don't even know how he was bringing deal, and I, and I didn't want to know at that time. But those those two, actually, they, they had opposite personality, but they were both good sales, because what I define a good sales is a sales that is meeting his target, because sales is target-driven, is result-driven. So I don't believe that personality is uh, something that stops the sales. I believe this is more on the manager level. Once the manager really understands the personality of the sales in his team, and he really tries to empower these sales to achieve his target to, to perform, then he or she will not give something that the sales doesn't like. He will instead focus on the strengths. So for example, the Italian guy, if you would ask him to send email, I would I think he would probably leave the job the day after. And on the other hand, the scientist, if you ask him to go to networking and make a speech in front of 500 people, he would probably give me the resignation letter before to go. <laughs> so this is about understanding your people and make them work at what they are at the what they are the best. Leveraging their strength. Uh, that's very interesting. Uh, so to follow up this question, how do you train, motivate, and manage? Uh, a salesperson or a team of salespersons, especially during uh, these times, such as now uh, where coronavirus, it's, it's affecting uh, businesses around the, the world. Actually, for this question, I believe the, the first part is about the mindset. And for this, I want to share when I changed my, my mindset about this, this crisis. That was beginning of February, I was in Japan, finishing my holidays, and I was bombarded by newspapers, friends, families calling me and saying, this is the mess, you should not come back to China, it's terrible, business are dying, and, and come back to France and everything. And, and that, was, that was tough. And at that time, I called my two coaches, actually one of them, I believe you know him, his name is Fion, and yes. the other one is a German CEO of 55 years old living in Shenzhen, and I called both of them. And what I learned from that call is that, actually, if you don't share with me, and I made a LinkedIn article, that mindset is the key. And if you try to survive, you either die or, or you survive. But if you try to make the best out of it, then you either make the best out of it, or you make nearly the best out of it. 
So the first part is about the mindset. And what my German coach taught me is that focus on the future. What's your 10 years vision? What do you want in the future? Because this outbreak will pass. It may take one month, may take six months, may take one year, may take three years, but this outbreak will pass. They, they will invent a vaccine, they will have medicine. So this is something that, of course, is changing the current environment, but that's not something that should change your long-term goal. And with that in mind, I realized that actually China was my home. I had my business there, I had my clients there, I have my family there too. So this was the place to be, and that's why we chose to come back to China. And I chose to come back to China with a mindset of positivity, of creativity, and of focus. And this is the message that I gave to all my clients the first week that I came back. And all of them were like me the day before, negative or passive. We just wait, we pray, we hope. And I changed their mindset. And actually, all of them now, they are positive, they are creative, they are focused. And all of them, they are having successes. So, of course, you have to change. Because if you do the same thing, it just doesn't work, right? But some of them change their target clients. Some of them change their solution. Some of them bring innovations. And actually, all of them, they have, they have success stories now. And it made me very proud. So I have to say that this is really the first part. It's about the mindset. The mindset of the executives, the mindset of your CEO, of the founders, of your directors, to show that actually there is something out there. Because in every crisis, there are winners. And you can see some industries, true, they are having enormous challenges. But on the other hand, some other industries, actually, they are striving. And they are doing an amazing job. So... How can you work with the people who are, who are doing amazingly today and how can you focus on them? So that's the first part. And then the second part is about the goal. Some of the salespeople, they are discouraged because they believe their goal is impossible to reach and they will not have their sales bonus. And as, as we all know, for a salesperson, actually the incentive is playing a very big part for the annual revenue. So what I always suggest my client is if you believe your goal is not reachable, don't change it. Change the action step toward this goal. If your salespeople really don't believe they can achieve the goal, means their current action plan is not working. The people they are targeting do not have any budget and they will not have budget in 2020. The way they are doing needs to change. And the solution that they are trying to give are not working anymore. So this is more for me in terms of the, the mindset, in terms of the action plan, the execution level, rather than a problem on the goal, I think, honestly, I have seen even a client in FNB doing great. So, and FNB is, on the paper, it should be the most challenging industry with hospitality and airlines. So, I really believe it's about the mindset and it's about how people are willing to change and how quickly they are willing to change. Because, of course, if they change too late compared to the competitor, they are losing market share and their company will not make the best out of it. Right, so uh, changing the mindset in these cases, it's it's a strength. Um, so uh, one question I I wanted to ask now is we may we know that coronavirus COVID nineteen as it's called officially has impacted businesses not only in China but now nowadays everywhere in the world, uh, Europe, US, and so on and so forth. And uh, I want to ask, and affect the companies and, and startups, uh, especially startups that have are at the a 
A stage rounds or don't have a, a very big cash flow. And uh, I want to ask, how can founders and CEOs, in these cases, can turn like one or two month turnover loss in one year profit? Is it about changing the strategy? Is it about having different goals? If what is it that they should focus on in these cases? Because this is like some of those things that you don't forecast, at least if you're a startup, maybe you can have some uh, uh, best practice put in place if you're a big companies, company, but if, if you're a startup, you don't foresee such thing to affect your business. So can, can you talk me more about that? How can founders cope with this change and turn that one or two month turnover loss in maybe one year or two year profit long? So in your question, actually, I see two parts. And I want to take an example from a founder, actually, that I'm mentoring that really did amazing. And, and I think that will reply to you part of your question. So the first part of your question was about the cash flow. And the second part, it's about the profit at the end of the year. So for me, those two are different because cash flow, this is more in the short term. And as Mr. Welsh says, cash is the king. So if you don't have the cash flow, company can run a few months, you're done. And the second part is about the profit at the end of the year. So it's your ability to sell and to have more income than your expense. So for the first part, for the cash flow, first of all, I'm not an expert. I don't have accounting background. But the sure thing is that it's time to look at your expense and to decide what are the expenses that you absolutely need and what are the expenses that you don't really need. And if I take an example, for example, in terms of office, now there are so many people working remotely. So if you are a founder and you believe that Within two months, you cannot make it. Maybe it's time to, to ask people to work remotely and, and don't use office anymore. This is just an example. Uh, this is the way I think. Um, I was thinking to actually have an office after changing the year, and now I realize I don't need it. Do you think that even my clients, do you think that actually we're... even my clients, I cannot enter in their, in their offices now. Right, sorry for interrupting. Because you need to have the car. So, and, and for the people who are stuck at home, why you need an office? So this is just a small example. And you wanted to share something? Yeah, I want to interrupt you here one second. Do you think like remote work affect the the company culture to some degree? This is also a very good question, and this is for me related to the company culture. Why? I have some friends. I will not say who. When they heard that they would do remote working, they were extremely happy because they were thinking that's amazing. I'm gonna play my favorite video game the whole day. <laughs> On the other hand, I had other friends when they heard they had remote working. The first thing that they did was to contact their CEO to make sure that they would receive the computer in order to do the job on time for their clients. So as you can see, I think remote working is just a, a catalyzer, is an acceleration of the behavior of the company culture. When people don't really buy in and are not really fully engaged with the company vision and mission and values, remote working is, is destructive. This is gonna destroy your productivity. On the other hand, if people are really attached to the company culture, vision, and mission, actually the productivity may rise. And I have few clients, they told me that now they are even thinking not to tell those employees to go back to office because during the working, remote working time, actually they were doing amazing, especially for the one who spend one or two hours in commute, uh, in transportation. And this is true. I mean, if you spend two hours in a metro at the end of the day, it's four hours. Those four hours, you could spend it to 
rest more, meditate, spend some time with your family, and you'll be much more productive at work. So I see it as a reflection on the behavior rather than a limitation. And then if I come back to the previous question that you asked, uh, the second part of the question was about the profit. And actually for this part, I want to take a, an example for, from someone actually that is working in Hong Kong. Uh, she's a founder and she's working with a lot of retailers. And as you know now, the retail industry is shaking because the demand is decreasing. This is not just a Asia problem, this is a worldwide problem. And now they are even thinking for Christmas, maybe uh, the demand will not be there and people will not go out and, and they are stopping the production. So what she did, instead of being passive and saying, okay, let's wait that the situation goes better, we had a phone call and we brainstormed and we were thinking, who could be the clients that would need your urgent help now? And we realized that actually telecom industry was a good industry because now since people are on internet, those um, giants such as Huawei, Orange, uh, Nokia, etc., they are all developing their infrastructure to sustain the internet, right? And what she did is she changed the, the niche market. She went to pitch the telecom industry. And of course, the telecom industry reacted very well because they have this urgent need. And actually, she's, she's doing great. Uh, so this is just a, an example how a change of the industry focus can change the profit. And this is actually related to what I do and how I choose my clients. When I meet the client for the first time, if he or she tell me, I want to grow 10% this year, for me, that's not a good sign. Because if you want to grow 10%, you just need to be more efficient. You just need to better prioritize your task, improve your time management, or maybe ask your people to work 10% more, and that's okay. But if you want to go 50%, 100% or more, being more efficient will not help. You need to be more effective. And being more effective is about the question you ask yourself, the way you empower your people, the way you coach them, the way you can unleash their creativity and their problem-solving abilities. And this crisis for me is developing this part. Because for the companies who are striving to be more effective, they really try to find new channels, new partners. They are trying to bring people like me in to help them to shift their mindset and, and bring the positivity. They will make the best out of it, I have no doubt. And actually, they will grow even faster. But for the one who just want to be efficient, the one who are maybe too concerned in terms of cost control, the one that before the crisis had too much fixed cost, I think there will be a very tough time for them. And again, this is not about startup or multinational. Uh, this is more about the, the DNA of the company and the way they manage their assets and their people. Mm, that's very interesting. Uh, asking yourself empowering questions that uh, can can change and change your mindset are two really important aspects. Uh, what the... I realize actually in sales is not about the answer, it's about the question you ask. Exactly. Not only to your clients, also to yourself. Right. How can I win this deal? How can I double my income? How can I duplicate the success that I just had? Those questions they are so powerful that when you ask yourself those questions, actually you have so many, you have millions of ideas coming. And, but if you don't ask yourself questions, or if you just ask questions on the media, like how bad will be the crisis? How down will the stock market come? How many months, years before this crisis will stop? Then it's disempowering. You, you are kind of negative and you dig your own hole. So 
if there is one thing that I want people to do after this podcast, it's about the power of question. Which question are you asking yourself on a consistent basis? And how powerful are they? That's an interesting way to end it. And related to questions, there is one last that I'd like to ask you. Uh, it's where and how can people reach to you to know more about you or to maybe work with you as well? For this, I would say LinkedIn is the best option because with LinkedIn, you can see my content, you can see what I do, what I write. And then well, I usually add almost everyone except the fake profile. So people can connect with me on LinkedIn, learn more about what I do, and then they can write me a message and I will be happy to, happy to call them or to connect with them on WeChat, WhatsApp, whatever tool that they are using in their country. But I think LinkedIn worldwide is very good since now I have some, some clients coming from USA or Singapore. They may not use WeChat. So I would, I would probably say LinkedIn is the best option and I'm happy to connect with them. And again, they don't have to be clients. They can be uh, friends, they can be partners. I also, I'm also very active in interacting in good content posts. So they can add me on LinkedIn, I will be very happy. That is amazing. Yuan, thank you very much for joining my podcast. Thank you so much, Giorgio, for inviting me. Actually, your, your question also helped me to reflect about what I do and, and why I do it. And I'm happy if this can give some value to your community. I think your initiative is amazing. I also listened to some of your podcasts in the past. So continue and, uh, and help more entrepreneurs to, to make it. Thank you very much.